Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to an exciting FS Club webinar. What does banking stand for? And I'm delighted today to be here with Chris Skinner, who is the author of uh, Doing Digital, as you see here, Doing Digital Lessons from Leaders, which is a superb book. Uh, but Chris is, more importantly, the founding chairman of the FS Club, and so it's a delight to have him back at home, so to speak. Now, you'll know me. I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien, and it is really my delight to be able to introduce many of these webinars, and I can only do so because of the tolerance, forbearance, and wide interests of the various sponsors that we have of the FS Club. They range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. And today, uh, Chris is going to be bringing a lot of that together because he is quite renowned uh, as a technological commentator on the financial services industry, as well as an economic one. Uh, my job is to get out of the way as quickly as possible, hopefully in uh, under three minutes. Uh, Chris is going to be presenting for about 25 minutes. He has a lot of interesting and fun slides. Uh, and then hopefully we can keep about 15 minutes for a conversation with you, the audience. And during that conversation, Please remember to use the GoToWebinar question facility. Uh, feed those questions. I will then uh, feed them in to Chris. Uh, please don't email me because uh, I am here with you, so I will only catch the emailed questions after we've finished. And I'm very much looking forward to that conversation with Chris, which is always interesting. Anyway, Chris, the floor is yours. Thank you, Michael. And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are. Um, one of the things we've learned this year is we're all global local in that uh, we've moved from flying around the world, seeing everything elsewhere to all being localized and locked down. Uh, I'm one of those people and um, it's unusual for me because I normally spend my time um, 40,000 feet above Earth. And so uh, to spend the whole of this year on Earth is a challenge in some ways, but it's not so challenging because we have the internet so we can still all access the rest of the world and um i guess you know many of us have been through ups and downs but the beginning of all of this was back in march all of us really saying oh no what's happening to the economy um we're, we're locking everyone down how's everyone going to survive and i've survived because of um the digital network and the fact that everyone's moving towards digitalization is a key factor. Those who were already digital are doing incredibly well, like the Amazons of this world. Those who were not ready to be digital, not ready to have employees working from home, not ready for a lockdown, have been struggling quite badly, uh, particularly, obviously, in the industries that we're all familiar with, uh, entertainment, airlines, hospitality, um, and sport. But you know, as we go through this, what strikes me is the way in which we've seen the grounding of everything and different economies dealing with it in different ways. Obviously, everything is um, stopping and everything is emptying. Um, but what does that mean for business? What does that mean for how we work long term? What happens when this ends? Do we go back to the way it was? Is everything going to go back to normal? Uh, what is the new normal? And these are all the questions that many of us are asking all the time because we're trying to work out what this means in the way we work. I find it quite amusing that the animals have taken over. Um, and I love some of these photos 
which unfortunately this is some lot rare responses so the slides might run away from me just to warn you because I'm finding it difficult to deal with them um, but I find it quite interesting that the animals have stepped into town taken over cities and we've gone back to nature uh, we've gone back to a very different world in some ways maybe we should try and make this last forever because with the climate emergency which all of us were talking about before this happened um, this year is perhaps the repercussion of that we've stopped flying we've stopped driving we're staying in and the animals have taken over we've gone back to nature maybe long term we should learn some lessons from that i think we should in particular though um, as we do look forward uh, we have to sorry i'm waiting for the slides to catch up with what i'm saying um, we, we have changed our work practices we've moved oh, this is very annoying sorry it's it, it it's moving like 10 20 seconds after i've touched the button um so we moved from a world where we were all um you know meeting and networking physically to a world where we're all meeting and networking digitally i'm sure you've seen the numbers but it still astounds me that zoom moved from 10 million active users in december 2019 to 300 million active users in april 2020 and that rapid movement towards video connectivity is in some ways quite astounding um, in that why didn't we do that before why didn't we do this way before uh, i've talked quite a lot about 2030 has been delivered in 2020 and in particular for me what's interesting is that now if you don't put the video on people wonder what you're doing <laughs> whereas before we all have conference calls we didn't need to have video connectivity i mean even as you've seen the queen is already now becoming an active zoom user um everyone is um and in some ways some people don't understand what that means on work processes and behaviors because for example very early in lockdown boris johnson had a cabinet meeting using zoom and unfortunately as you can see if you look closely on this slide gave away his zoom meeting number which means that he could be hacked and accessed by anyone who wanted to get into those meetings you know zoom became and is maybe a halloween thing it's scary um and if you haven't seen it there's actually a horror movie called uh, um, host which is all about someone on zoom um seeing their friends being murdered which because i'm a horror fan i watch that sort of stuff um but it is quite scary because we've suddenly gone from global to local but we're still global but through the internet not through the airline and to me that is a permanent shift in behavior i don't think we're going to go back to big conferences and networking like we used to have i think what we'll see is human connectivity still physical but where it can be digital it will be we'll have meetings where people don't need to be in offices they can stay at home Jess Staley, the CEO of Barclays, came out um, a few months ago and said, what's the point of having a 70-story office for thousands of people? We don't need it anymore. Other people disagree. There's lots of discussion around what's the point of an office. If you buy into that debate, then real estate will go through the floor. 
in terms of pricing. But equally, what are the assets worth that we used to value? And I think a repricing of assets is going to be an interesting discussion amongst the banking system because a lot of asset management is based on physical assets. Now we are much more concerned about digital assets. Our digital assets are maybe worth more than our physical assets. So a major restructuring of society is taking place as we go through 2020. And the main restructuring is this digital connectivity that we enjoy. Then we ask ourselves, what's going to be the recovery? Originally, there was a lot of conjecture it would be a V-shaped recovery. We go through a big downturn and come back up very quickly. Then some said it's going to be taking longer than that. It's a U-shaped recovery. And quite a few now, as we move into a second lockdown, maybe a third one, are talking about a W or even a woo recovery, because it's going to take a lot longer than maybe we expected. I like the idea that um, some economists have discussed of a K-shaped recovery. <clears throat> the reason I like the K-shaped recovery is not for the discussion that some economists have had around those who have and those who have not, but more to me because the K-shape represents what I've debated for many years, which is those who are on the upper side of the K are digital and those who are on the downside of the K are physical. Those who are enjoying a good time are those who can serve as customers and employees from home. Those who are not enjoying a good time, they're having a really bad time, is those who depend on physical footfall, physical people being in physical locations. And this is the dichotomy of our economy right now, and I think this will last for the decade. It's represented quite clearly by the numbers in that we've seen uh, online retail, um, online um, delivery, online services really go through the roof as represented by Zoom, but also by Amazon and by others. And in banking and payments, we've seen that exactly showing itself in the numbers of those who are making purchases online. The use of cash has gone through the floor. Um, many people did withdraw a lot of cash back in March, April, but they haven't used it. Um, and what's interesting actually is card sales have actually gone down quite significantly too, but a lot of that is because of the implosion of travel. So American Express, Visa, MasterCard reported uh, quite major sh shrinking numbers of use of card. But the use of card and cash at the same time has been displaced or is being replaced by the number of downloads of digital banking financial services. There's been a major explosion of digital finance since March. And yet some thought they could wait a long time to make that transformation. I actually deal with a number of banks and quite a few financial institutions where I found it very difficult to talk to them since March. In fact, some actually shut down their customer services completely. And some, because it was taking so long to get hold of anybody in the financial institution, I haven't spoken to since March because I can't be bothered calling them and waiting for an hour or two hours to get through to a human being. Bear in mind that a lot of the global servicing that we had before was based on offshore services. When offshore services shut down, there were no onshore services. And even if there had been onshore services, they had now moved to employees working from home. So the digital transformation process 
has been escalated. And those who were really digital have done really well. There's been quite a few challenger banks, neobanks and others who have done really well. But a lot of the traditional financial providers, I think, have let their customers down badly. And I'm talking today about a great unlock. So when the lockdown ends, I think a lot of the customers who have been dissatisfied, both corporate and retail, will shift their accounts. They'll move. They're not shifting them today, mainly because there's a nervousness when you're in a lockdown and can't go and see the bank about closing your account. But when the great unlock happens, I think there'll be a tsunami of shift of customers from traditional financial providers to maybe other financial providers who are traditional but digital and to other financial providers who are new and digital. And this is going to be something that's going to be interesting to see in 2021 and onwards. And one of the things in doing digital that I talk about a lot is you have to be adaptable to change. As Charles Darwin says here, it's not the strongest or the fastest or the most intelligent that survives. It's the one that's most adaptable to change, which is what I tried to understand when I did the book Doing Digital. I spent a long time talking to some of the biggest banks in the world, interviewing their C-level leaders, JP Morgan Chase, DBS, BBVA, China Merchants Bank and ING. And what I ended up learning is that all kind of gone through the same process, which is the hardest thing to do to begin with when you're trying to do digital transformation is to work out what to do and how to do it. The actual doing it and doing it better forever, the third and fourth phases, are a lot easier. But working out what to do is really difficult. What they, most of them ended up doing is said, well, digital can't be some rocket science. Let's go and see who does digital well. So they wrote a list of who they thought were digital innovator leaders like the Amazons and the Alibabas of this world. And they went and visited them and saw how they managed their operations and people and structures. And from that, they got a lot of learning lessons, which, um, they incorporated into their bank structure, but it took them maybe a year or two to get to that stage. One of the key things in then implementing the change is you have to have a real reason why people have to change. You know, if you don't give me any incentive to change, I won't change. So they created a burning platform. In DBS, it was the launch of Digibank in India and Indonesia. In ING, it's because they learned how to do banking direct without branches around the world when they launched ING Direct. In China Merchants Bank, it's because they are a technology-led bank and made it quite clear we have to be mobile first. In BBVA, it's actually because there was a money laundering scandal. They changed the executive leadership team and the new team were, by background, highly digital. In JP Morgan Chase, it's because Jamie Dimon actually understands the importance of digital and back in 2014 said Silicon Valley is coming to eat our lunch. We've got to change. They all have critical burning platforms for change, but there's no good in having a burning platform for change if you don't have a direction of where to go. So there has to be a clear vision of the journey the bank is going to take to get to a digital transformation future. And this is not a destination, it's a journey. It continues non-stop forever. 
So it doesn't end, but it's really around what are the key things we're looking for in our vision of what the bank will become when it's truly digital. I've recently spent a long time talking about being cloud native versus being cloud based. A lot of banks are moving to digital cloud structures because they've been forced to since March 2020. So their employees can work from home and they can service their customers at home. But actually, that's evolving their old business model as quickly as they can to the cloud based business model. They haven't reinvented their business model to be truly digital, truly cloud native. One of the things that struck me when I did a case study in depth on Ant Group for Digital Human, my previous book, is I attended a conference chaired by Jack Ma, and the backdrop to the conference was, we're not made in China anymore, we're made on, made on the internet. And that kind of stayed with me. I, I just love that idea of we're made on the internet. Businesses born on the internet. What would that look like? Again, if you think about it, imagine if this lockdown lasted forever. Forever. What business model would you have built? What structure would you have to deal with a permanent pandemic? That's the model you should implement. That's the vision you should have. And it's a very different business to being just an evolution of having been branch-based to being cloud-based. It's cloud-native, born on the internet. Having got that idea, then again, it's taken some time to get there, working out what to do and how to do it, maybe two or three years. And then you actually implement the change. And a lot of it is about people transformation. It's not about technology at all. It's about how to change the people in the organization. DBS talk about themselves as a 27,000 people startup, like a FinTech startup but with 27,000 people. It's easy to say that, but there's a lot of aspects of communication that go into how you do that. Talking about joyful banking, making banking joyful, making this a great customer experience, dealing with customer journeys, understanding the customer exactly intimately as though you are the customer. It's a whole new skill set. It's not product focused. I often can see, because I've dealt with this so many years, that banks push products through channels to get customer share of wallet. Whereas now what we have to deal with is encouraging customers to interact with us by giving them great experiences so we can offer them services. It's looking at it completely from the other way around, not from the product perspective, but from the customer perspective. And reskilling people is part of what these banks have been doing. They've also been restructuring the people. I kind of look at it like synchronized swimming. They've got the people now in a flattened organization that's lean and agile, team-based. And you know, ING said to me, we used to be 30,000 people. We're now 3,000 teams. And the 3,000 teams have got direct access to the chief executive and to the C-level suite if they need decisions. It's fast decision-making. You don't have to spend months messing around trying to get access to the person who can sign off on the deal. You have to make that deal decision that day in some cases. It's very different to old star banking. I always remember one of my friends from Alipay saying to me that um, when they dealt with some of the banks, it would take them uh, as long to get access to a C-suite decision maker as it would for them to implement their whole new systems architecture. That speaks volumes.
Having implemented the change, and we're already looking at five to seven years here, then you have to do it better forever. And I think the key thing about doing it better forever is that data is the critical factor that banks will succeed or fail over the next decade in how they deal with data, how they leverage their data, how they analyze their data. A lot of discussion has gone around that data is the new oil. It's not oil. Oil is a fossil fuel that's limited and is going to disappear very soon. Data is air. It's the air that we breathe. It's the oxygen we need to make our businesses successful. And banks have all that data today. Some of it was being given away to lifestyle banks like Monzo or Revolut. Having said that, the lockdown has meant that lifestyle banks are kind of irrelevant because we're not living a lifestyle right now. We're staying at home. So there's still a great opportunity for banks to leverage data as the oxygen and fuel of their business. But they need to make sure it's structured correctly and analyzed correctly. So those are a lot of the themes that I explored around doing digital. And I'm working on the new project right now, which is what I call purpose-driven banking. And for me, it may have been knocked a little bit off course in 2020 from where I started this idea. But I think if banks don't stand for something, they don't stand for anything. And customers, particularly Gen Z and millennials, are looking for not just relationship banking, but a relationship with their bank that they can believe in, that they actually buy into. And so the bank has to have a clear purpose. And this emerged very clearly with the climate emergency, which is following rapidly on the back of the pandemic, which is that we have to have something that we stand for that is relevant to customers, that customers can buy into. It's not just driven by profits for shareholders, it's driven by value for stakeholders. This was quite clearly an emerging trend in 2019, particularly as Jamie Dimon led the business roundtable in the USA to say that they were going to create stakeholder capitalism that would replace shareholder capitalism. Milton Friedman's idea of a business only ex exists for profit is dead. Some would say. You may disagree, but I think the purpose-driven business is going to become a really interesting trend in the 2020s. Because right now, most of the fossil fuel firms only exist because financial institutions fund them and support them. If financial institutions, particularly pension funds, withdrew support for fossil fuel firms, then we would see a rapid change to renewables and green energy. We are seeing that a little bit already, but I think it would escalate it. And I was talking to a pension fund manager in 2019 who said, I'm really worried that by the time I get to serve my customers, there won't be any customers left. As in, who needs a pension if there's nothing left on Earth to give a pension to? Maybe we all live on Mars. That's a terrible perspective. But we are seeing a lot of purpose-driven innovation in 2020, like Captain Sir Tom Moore and the way in which we bought into his individual mission to help the NHS, or like uh, Marcus Rashford and his individual focus and purpose on giving kids food or the likes of the Black Lives Matter movement and the fact that it does matter. And people might say every life matters, but the reason why Black Lives Matter is because they're treated less than us. And that's been quite a critical thing in 2020. 
like the kneeling of an American footballer that's led to all of our footballers kneeling. Believe in something. Purpose matters. That's become quite a critical agenda for the future. And it's actually being, being able to reach to every individual and get them to buy into your vision and purpose, to actually communicate that clearly to customers, that it's not just for profit. Customers think banks are pure, purely about profit. And the reason why that's an issue, to, to me, it stems back to many moments in my life, but the specific one was when Lord Adair Turner, who was then the chair of the Financial Services Authority in 2009, said most functionality and services in banking are socially useless. They need to become socially useful. And that's really what it's all about today. Creating a vision and a purpose that's not just PR, but actually committed. There's a lot of PR out there. There's actually not so many that are committed. So there's lots of things I've covered there. And I know it's a short time, but I trust that some of that resonated with you. And I guess my summary is that 2020 has brought in a whole raft of change that's made us all be forced to be digital. You shouldn't just be cloud-based. You should be cloud-native. You shouldn't put digital on top. You need to have digital at the core. You really need to have a business that's been born on the internet, not just evolved into the network. And you need to have a business that communicates what you stand for, because if you don't stand for something, then you don't stand for anything. And with that, I'll hand back to Michael. Thanks for listening. Chris, that was super to see you. Uh, we've got quite a few questions and comments here. Um, um, so let, let me just uh, pile in. Um, you ended on that note about we've been you know, forced due to COVID to really increase uh, digitalization. Uh, Madhu uh, Acharya uh, is, points out that a uh, human is a social being, not designed as a mechanical person. Um, I think we'll shortly see the severe implication of economically motivated digitization. Uh, and in, in, in my view, digitization is imposed on us force, forcefully due to commercial reasons. Uh, and, you know, digitization is crafting an artificial society where social values are reframed and measured for commercial purposes. Um, also wonders if lockdown remains forever, then will we see people come out on the streets and break the lockdown? So uh, pointing to a lot of social tension there. Um, on this forced digitization. Any thoughts on that? Well, although I advocate digitalization, um, I also advocate humanity and humanization. Uh, you have to have the hum humanity in the digital processes. And if you forget about that, then you'll fail. Um, I always remember working with one particular financial institution many years ago who launched a amazing uh, online banking service, but it was so technology led that no customer could understand what the hell it meant and how to use it. And it failed dismally. And that's because it was designed by technologists and not by the human process. Um, the critical reason why we're doing these video connected sessions today is because we've had to move to digital socialization because physical socialization has been shut down. And I did mention earlier in the presentation, I don't think physical socialization will 
end. We won't have a lockdown forever. It will unlock. But I think the fundamental change in our behavior is many people, particularly management in businesses, will question whether you really need to go to that conference. Do you really need to fly across the world for that meeting? Do you really have to spend that money on a hotel and an airline to do this business? In, you know, the bottom line of that is that if it can be done this way, that's the permanent shift in our behavior, that we will permanently shift to saying, if you don't have to go to the conference, the meeting to do the business, and it can be done by video and over Zoom or whatever you want to use, that's what we're going to use because it makes sense. We've got used to it and we're still socializing. Uh, I'm actually far more social with friends and family this year than I've ever been because last year I was always flying around the world and too busy. This year I'm stuck at home, so I'm not taking all those days out of the diary to go and um, have a meeting somewhere on the other side of the world. So I'm ringing my mum and my brother and my friends every day. I didn't do that last year. Uh, Rupert Stubbs has a, an interesting pair of questions. Uh, he says, McKinsey says that uh, digital assets can be valued just like physical ones, you know, through cash flow generated. Does that make sense to you? And he, goes, he continues uh, saying digital transformation is presented as the business solution to everything. Yet why is there never a focus on how would a company be different and better from the competition once every business in their sector has digitally transformed them? Any thoughts on that? So on the digital asset valuations, um, it's emerging. Uh, one of the things I talk about, particularly when we're looking at future banking, is the future bank will be both a physical asset manager and digital asset manager. And the asset management industry will move to both digital and physical assets. Obviously, physical assets um, in terms of property um, are valuable, but going down this year. Um, some would argue it's going up. I think long term, as I mentioned, the value of a large office is going to be questionable. Um, in fact, I'm working on a business here in Poland that um, is the concept of space as a service, taking physical offices that are not currently being used because of the pandemic and offering them as a kind of Airbnb platform for completely flexible access for startups. Um, and I think there's going to be an interesting development in that area. And when we talk about digital assets, you know, the most valuable companies in the world today are digital the Amazons, the Alibabas, the Tencents, the Facebooks. Um, and there was that great quote a few years ago, they have no media, no content, no physical services, no rooms. Um, you know, Airbnb doesn't own any buildings uh, except for their head office. You know, so there's obviously uh, digital assets that are highly valuable. Um, those things will change. Um, and that's going to be an interesting area over the next decade specifically. On the digital transformation front, um, I think the challenge it really lies in understanding um, the business model of digital. And there's very few that understand it well. I, I would claim to be one who does because I've been doing this for a long time. But I keep saying that front office, middle office, back office that used to be physical buildings with humans with infrastructure connecting to back office buildings with humans is replaced by front office apps, middle office APIs, back office analytics. And those who understand that business model will be really successful. It won't come through in the immediate short term, but it will come through in the long term.
Great. Uh, Darmish Mystery has a, has a few questions here. Uh, digital banks seem to largely feed off of interchange fees. Uh, Starling, for example, that's 45% of their revenue. Is this sustainable? Where will they make money in the future? And why doesn't Europe or the USA have an equivalent super app like the Chinese uh, WeChat? Nice one, Darmish, and uh, I congratulate you on your haircut. Um, so on that question, um, the reason why there's no super app in Europe or the USA is because the regulators won't allow it. Um, you've got to bear in mind that Tencent and Alibaba uh, and Ant Group Alipay are pretty much hand in hand with the Chinese regulators and government. And if you didn't believe that, then the shutdown of the Ant Group IPO two days before it was going to happen demonstrates the People's Republic of China have control. Um, and they have control over those super, super apps in the USA and Europe. We won't allow that um, mega structure to ex exist and occur. Um, and what we are seeing, however, is some interesting developments. And I don't know if you saw it the other day, Michael, but um, the People's Republic of China is now trying to create a global standard for travel based around QR codes. That's just a first step towards creating a global um, payment mechanism and I, I think we will see a, a global payment me mechanisms growing and in particular we're seeing digital currencies growing again if you didn't see it, it's the first country to issue a national digital currency a CBDC, CBDC central bank digital currency is but the Bahamas um, and so now for 400,000 people in the Bahamas they have a national digital currency called the B dollar uh, Cambodia is going to be the next one um, and China's probably going to be the one after that. Yeah, they're making great progress there uh, in, in a couple of cities, that's for sure. Um, sort of two themes running here. I'd just like to pick up the first one, which is um, uh, very much about the nature of work. And then uh, I'll move on to um, the core theme of socially useful banking. Bob McDowell uh, wonders, will the digital world produce a significant digital dropout minority those who cannot be bothered with a continual journey in a digital or nothing uh, should they be ignored and the he continues does the digital world turn work into a lifestyle so good question um because i do worry about the digital divide those who are digital and those who are not um there's something like the numbers vary, but let's say 10 million people in Britain who are not really online uh, and fully included digi digitally. I think in the USA, the number rises to about 40 million, um, maybe more. Numbers vary. Um, worldwide, there's about a billion people who are not included um, digitally. Um, and then you have to think about what does being included digitally mean, which actually um, is it just having a, a phone, a smartphone? A computer um, and how much does the uh, system include you um, and I guess one of the good points to look at there is in India in that um, the Indian stack uh, I think is an incredible development project that's been running now for almost 15 years or more um, that also includes the India chain and um, the Aadhaar digital identity for every citizen in India which some say is a state control mechanism, a little bit like Tencent and Alibaba in China, but it's also a state inclusion mechanism. And one of the key things around the India stack and the numbers were something like in 2010, 35% of Indians had access to the financial network. 
that had financial inclusion. And by 2018, it was 82%. In just eight years, they transformed their society. And I think this is a critical factor, which is we have to make people digitally included or at least have access to digital inclusion. Even if they're excluded today, 10 million, 40 million, a billion, they need to have those who can help them get included. And it, it may just be as simple as offering them access to your to a phone, but it, it, that they need to have access because otherwise you, you lose relevancy and you, you lose the ability to, to do real work. I mean, I've been working really well here since March digitally. So, yeah, of course, digital is, is a way of working. Um, Alexander Peshkov is curious, you know, given this digital divide and, and as you mentioned, you know, the Bahamas, Cambodia, China and many other central banks looking at uh, central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, uh, do you really think that they're going to change banking? Oh, that, most definitely. I mean, these developments this year uh, have been escalated. It, it kind of started, I guess, partly because China was looking at a CBDC, uh, central bank currency. Uh, um, in response to their concerns about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, because they didn't want that to take off in China. And they've done a very good job, in fact, of blocking Bitcoin in China. Um, but because of that, the Federal Reserve, um, the European Central Bank, uh, you know, every every central bank has now said we've got to do something as digital currency. And, and the question then arises around two or three key areas. One is how do they issue those central bank currencies, do they do it through the traditional intermediaries, the traditional commercial banks, or is it direct, directly offered to the citizens to use as they wish through their mobile telephone? Um, and obviously, if they offered it direct and not through the central bank, that's a concern, sorry, through the commercial bank, that's a concern for the banking industry, which you know we're grappling with. But I come back to you know, banks are not there just to do payments or manage currencies. They're there as stores of trust and exchanges of value um, and, in, and in intermediaries, intermediaries of trust. So I, I, I think banks will be around long term. I think it will, it will just change them fundamentally. And then the second thing is obviously, even, even if they did issue directly to citizens or through commercial banks, why would you want a central bank currency versus a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin? And I always come back to who is backing the currency. And if it's the network that's backing the currency, do I trust and believe in that as much as I do in my government? So I kind of feel long term CBDCs will become a basket of digital currencies that will be used on a global platform basis, probably more with trust of citizens than those that don't have the backing of anything other than the network. Yeah, well, as you know, I've got some strong views on this too, in line with yours. Uh, Hugo Innes, who's uh, very involved with Barbados, I know, is also kind of curious: Are digital national currencies really sustainable in terms of cross-border finance? You know, or only for a few large countries? So, good point there. But let's move on to um, socially, uh, you know, useful banking, banking with purpose. Uh, we have a bit of a divided audience here. Um, so we've got uh, Genevieve Levey, who uh, compliments you and talks about profit for purpose. Uh, Timothy Coleman says he agrees completely with purpose-driven businesses and looks at the rise of impact investment platforms like Impact Central or Chorus Network as, as evidence of this. Yet, on the other hand, 
of Bob McDowell wonders, you know, is the purpose of driven business a substitute for religious belief? Uh, and Alexander Peshkov is sort of saying socially useful. Banking is about making money for banks, uh, charging for services and or lending. Is there any other model? So some thoughts on those two extremes. Well, I underline the point about purpose-driven banking being stakeholder focused for all aspects of the community rather than just being for shareholders and profit because that's very much resonating with next generation customers but equally it arose for me on several occasions i mentioned you know adair turner's comment around being socially useless um but you know banks sit as the middle ground between society and government uh, it's the reason why banks are often the oldest institutions in most countries and why they are not allowed to fail and are supported and propped up by governments when they do have issues. And when you look at that middle role between government and society, then it obviously has to be more useful to society than useless to society. When I visited Ant Group, uh, they had a poster on the wall which has stayed with me as another sort of theme, which is our role is to do good for society and good for the planet. And that's actually a cultural ethos value of Jack Ma. But it quite clearly states their purpose. It's not just making money, it's doing good for society and good for the planet. And when you look at their track record, they've done a lot of good for the Chinese society and they're doing actually a lot of good for the planet by planting trees you, uh, throughout forest. So another aspect that's coming through to me right now, because I'm working with a couple of new book projects around this theme, is that purpose-driven companies that have this clear cultural value ethos last longer and grow faster than those who don't. So if you're purely there for profit, I would claim maybe you've got the wrong focus. Now, a lot of this uh, helping the planet and modernization and better service and COVID uh, is really wholly dependent on digital. And Hugh Purser is wondering if many businesses are behind the uh, curve on cybersecurity, what happens if or when financial services are hit by a COVID-19 type scenario there? Um, I, I would throw in, you know, a coronal mass ejection or Carrington event. You know, what do we do? Do we return to physical? Well, we've seen a lot of cybersecurity questions over the last 20 years, um, and, and we deal with it. And I, I, again, um, there's lots of illustrations, but the core is banks always just need to be ahead of the criminal curve. Um, and as long as they're always ahead of the criminal curve, then um, we'll keep the system running. Uh, and what I mean by ahead of the criminal curve is before we had digitalization, we um, had a lot of losses and defaults on loans and credit, but um, and and also fraud. But but we 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 have an acceptable level of fraud and defaults and um, losses. And as long as we're always ahead of that acceptable level of fraud, defaults, and losses, then I don't I wouldn't worry too much about cybersecurity. Well, we've run uh, to the end of time, um, and I'm getting a lot of good comments and uh, compliments for you, which I will send, all the questions and comments will be sent on uh, to Chris, folks. Um, but I'd just like to end on a, on a quick question, if I could, from Robin Davies. He says, 
great presentation, but is there any league of useful banks or how would you put uh, together a, a league table of purpose-driven useful banks? Well, I, I, I'm working on this idea of purpose-driven banks right now. And um, it's funny because I've ended up where about half of the new book are Dutch. <laughs> so a lot of the Dutch banks um, have been heavily involved in renewables and green and environmental focus and change for a long time. Um, but it's not just Dutch banks. And in fact, one comment that really struck home to me was when um, Anna Botam, the executive chairman of Santander, was being interviewed by Bloomberg and said, look, we don't believe in fossil fuel companies, but we can't withdraw funding from them overnight. We have to do it over time. And she used Poland as an illustration. Poland is one of the most polluted countries of Europe in terms of fossil fuels. Um, but you can't stop that overnight. You have to do it over time. And so I think a lot of banks do recognize being it's not just climate emergency. It's everything from homelessness, inequality, um, disease, pandemics, you name it. You know, that a lot of banks recognize the issues. Um, but there's a few that really stand out. But they tend to be quite small right now. But um, there's more and more of them. Well, Chris, sadly, I, uh, due to time, I do have to draw to a close. Uh, but just hang on for a moment. Uh, got really three rounds of thanks. Uh, first as ever, uh, thanks to our sponsors, many of whom I know combine finance and technology with a social purpose, which is uh, really what, you, what you're talking about today and which I think many of us admire as something to do. Um, we definitely have uh, more webinars coming on on relevant topics there. But in the immediate future, I would point you, the audience, thank you so much for your interaction today. But tomorrow we have a fascinating session uh, with uh, Archbishop John McDowell dialing in from Northern Ireland on money in the New and Old Testament, the influence of Christianity, Christian thinking on finance. Um, this is definitely a series that I'm interested in. And we had a fantastic uh, presentation from Saeed two months ago on the Islamic views. Uh, we'll be looking at innovation in the law on Thursday. Uh, with uh, yet again somebody influencing us from the Netherlands, Chris. Uh, on Tuesday, we have Building a Global Britain. That's a geopolitical event in line with City Forum. Again, those have been very, very well attended. And very finally, also on Tuesday, we'll be looking at uh, ways of investing in technology that can improve employee experiences. So a lot ahead, as ever, go and check out the website. But Chris, my real thanks are obviously to you. Uh, you're, you know, you have a lot of fans out here amongst us, uh, not least having founded uh, the FS Club. Uh, and I can't, I'm unable to open the floodgates of applause. Uh, but I think in a socially driven uh, and purpose driven bank, one ought to have a Korean karmic clapper. Uh, this comes from a Buddhist temple in Bolgoksa in, in Korea. And I will uh, hand the applause to you. Uh, and hopefully that too is purpose driven. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you again, uh, hopefully next year, and we can follow up this theme and hear more about your books and your thinking as it develops. So thank you very thank much. You.